I'm Kimberly C. Palm. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. Well, I'm Kimberly Paul, and here we are with Death by Design podcast. And I'm really fortunate to welcome Margot Folks. Um, she has started a really interesting platform called Salt Water. And she did it because of a personal experience. And that's where it brings me to ask the question, Margot, about your children, Jimmy and Molly. Um, talk to me about them and how and how you came to, I guess, be inspired to create salt water. See, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> um, so I have two children. My son, Jimmy, is the older one. And he, he from the time he emerged, was this really happy-go-lucky, easygoing kid um, who just made friends easily and kind of embraced the world. And he was followed by his sister, Molly, four and a half years later who is just a live wire. She was the kid with just boundless energy. And it was kind of funny to watch the dynamic between the two of them growing up because when she was really little, Jimmy liked to tease her in a very gentle sort of way. And as she got a little bit older, like maybe four or so, she started to get him. She would <laughs> tattle on him. She would do different things that she knew would annoy him. And so they always had this very sweet dynamic between them, even though they would sometimes bicker and all that, but they were always really close growing up. I bet that made you really, really love that they were close. Yes. I, we felt very fortunate. And I think some of it is maybe the dynamic of having a boy and a girl. Mm. I think some of it's the four and a half years. So that as she fought to keep up with her older brother, he had his own life, his own activities that he was good at. So there wasn't that feeling of like, you know, you have two boys who both play baseball and they're two years apart and the younger one is better. You know, we just didn't have that. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. So talk to me about Jimmy. And, you know, we know that Molly had a really close relationship to him, but there was an incident in his teen years that, that happened that totally radically imploded everyone's exactly. world. Exactly. So when he was 13 and a half, he started getting headaches that at first just seemed like stress kind of things. You know, he'd come home from basketball practice and he'd have a headache. And I would think, okay, he's stressed about school or maybe he's a little dehydrated, which is pretty common, I think, with boys sometimes at that age. But they got increasingly worse to the point when we came home from our trip over New Year's uh, in 2005. So we came home in January 2006 from that trip they were significant enough that my husband and I took him to the pediatrician and our pediatrician was out of town. So we saw the man who was filling in in the practice and he was pretty dismissive of them just saying, you know, I think these are teenage onset migraines. It nothing to worry about. And at, 
my mom instinct said, no, there's something more going on because Jimmy just kept getting like grayer and sicker and more kind of curled into himself. And eventually the pediatrician ordered an MRI, which revealed that Jimmy had a brain tumor, which was something that none of us, even the pediatrician saw coming because they're so rare in kids. And this particular kind, they get 350 cases a year in the United Mm. States. So definitely not something where, you know, he should have been looking for it or anything like that. When you hear brain tumor, 13-year-old son playing sports, um, do you recall how you felt in that moment? I do. And part of the reason why is because I was about to go out of town for three days to run a strategy retreat for a client. And so we we took Jimmy together, my husband and I, to the MRI. And the MRI machine was basically broke down. And they said, come back at five. And I was running late in terms of being prepared to go. And so Dan said, look, I'll take him. You stay home. You know, be fine. No big deal. And he got home after the MRI and he sent Jimmy out to the couch to watch TV with Molly. And he came in our home office and shut the door and he knelt down next to me and he said, Jimmy has a brain tumor. And I looked at him and I said, no, 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 this isn't possible. And I was completely, it was so beyond anything I could imagine that I I was just in denial that it could even be our reality. I, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. And so I have this really vivid memory of it because I can see me sitting in my desk chair with Dan kneeling down next to me and telling me this. And then realizing too, in that moment that he had carried that news all the way home without telling Jimmy, because of course he wanted me to know so we could tell him together and thinking about what that must've been like for him too. Did you feel yourself like change in in an instant? You know, you must, being a mother, hearing that news and, and the news that you can't, you can't protect your son. Right. Exactly. From, exactly. And I, I come from a, a mother who was a librarian and a medical researcher informally for the family. We used to call her Dr. Kilgore, which was her maiden <laughs> name. And it was, you know, she, she loved doing research. And so anytime anyone in the family was sick, she would drive over to the medical library in San Jose, where my parents lived, where I grew up, and she would go do research and figure out, you know, what to do and how to, you know, how to help the, whoever the family member was that was dealing with this. And so I had done a lot of research trying to figure out what Jimmy had and it had never, it didn't occur to me that it would be something like this. And so it just, it upended everything. And exactly what you said too, that feeling of, I was a mom who thought I can protect my kids. I paid attention. I kept them safe. I said, no, you can't do, go do that thing that feels unsafe to me, even though you want to. And then here I was sitting there thinking, I, I can't, I can't protect him from this. Yeah. At the same time, I will tell you that when we, Molly got picked up by a friend. And Dan and I drove Jimmy down to the local pediatric hospital because he was going to have surgery the next morning. Holy cow. You went from knowing this to the next morning surgery? Yes. No way. Yeah. Because when Dan got Dan, so they did the MRI 
And then the MRI tech came out a few minutes later and said to Dan, the pediatrician wants to talk to you. He's on the phone. And he didn't ask whether Dan had been told. So when Dan took the call, the first words out of this guy's mouth were, I'm so sorry about your son's brain tumor. And Dan said, wait, what? What are you talking about? And so then he had to backpedal and explain that that's what had shown up on the MRI. And he said, you need to go home and get your wife and you guys need to take Jimmy to the ER immediately. And they're going to check him in and you'll meet the neurosurgeon. And tomorrow morning, you know, 8 a.m., she's going to go in and take it out. So what when when your husband told you about, bless his soul, I have to just, I, the empathy and the compassion of him sitting there and coming home to have to tell you, what was it like for you and your husband to then turn to your son and tell him what he was about to go through? So it was hard, but at the same time, for me anyway, I won't speak for Dan, but for me, I was still in that mama bear mode. This was really unexpected, but I thought we can get this, right? The, they say the doctor said we're going to go in and the surgeon is going to take it out. Well, we're going to take it out and he's going to be fine. And it, you know, it didn't occur to me that there would be chemotherapy and radiation. I thought, well, we'll just go cut it out and then it will be gone. And then this nightmare will be over. So I, my memory is we told him from a very kind of, we got this way, like, here's the news, but we're going to go in and get it. They're going to take it out tomorrow and you're going to be just fine. Now, did you know that the brain tumor most likely was cancer? No, not in that moment. Yeah. It was just a brain tumor. We're going to get it out. We got this. Come on, my son, let's go and, and take care of it. And then, um, then after that, we could do anything together kind of mentality. Exactly. So talk to me about the waiting room. Or first, you know, I don't want to forget Molly. Um, you know, and when you have a, a, a child going through something major like this, it it's it's easy to forget that one that's still strong and but yet they're close. How was it what was how is it I mean, when did you tell Molly? And and what was it like for her? Because she was younger. And and I just I just am thinking about her right now. So Molly was younger, is younger. She was nine and a half. Um, I'm sorry, no, not nine and a half. She was about to turn nine. I'm forgetting the dates. She was about to turn nine. And we told her them both at the same time because we thought we had this, right? So the other thing, just to fill in one other missing piece. So in December, Jimmy had had an attack of appendicitis and we had had to take him to the same hospital in the middle of the night. And we actually took Molly with us at this point because it was too late to think about really calling anybody. And, and we rushed him down there. And then he had surgery the next morning arthroscopically to take out his appendix. And he was home in a day or two, whatever it was. And so again, this also fed into my thought of, okay, this is scary, but you go in, you have the surgery. You know, I didn't think about what the recovery would be like. In a day, you'll be home. I'll make sure. And you'll be home, right? And so we kind of presented it the same way um, so that Molly could wrap her mind around the idea of, okay, Jimmy's going to go into the hospital. And this is a little more scary than the last one. 
but you'll be with one of your best friends and her family and we'll get this done and everything will be fine. It's going to be the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So talk to me about the waiting room at the hospital with you and your husband. So we were really lucky in that we didn't have to wait very long. When we walked in, the front desk knew that we were coming and we were sent up immediately. Part of this, I think, is because it had it, it had taken them a bit to figure out what was going on. And Jimmy was having these, these headaches that I was telling you about that were pretty significant. And so the way he'd get relief is that he would throw up from the pressure and then it they would it would basically ease off immediately. And what the brain surgeon explained to us was that the tumor was large enough that it was blocking the flow of spinal fluid. And so the pressure would build up in his head and then he would throw up and the tumor would move and then the and then the flow would start again and all the pressure would go. Again, you know, we didn't know. We we had no idea that this was what was happening, but she wanted to get some some steroids in him immediately to to get the swelling down in his brain so that he could feel more comfortable. And that I remember that more than anything is that they got the steroids in him right away. And he said, man, I feel great. I haven't felt this good in two weeks. Can I have a pizza? Uh, the small things. The small things. Exactly. The freaking exactly. small things. Yes. And, and also to the surgeon's credit, she was, she had a really good bedside manner and which is, I think, unusual sometimes for, for surgeons. Sure. So yeah. she got to us quickly. You know, we didn't sit around for a long time in that room waiting for her. And she was very reassuring. She had kind of what my husband called like a fighter jock personality, but mm. not in a in like an abrasive way. It was like she had the sort of like, we got this. I'm going right. in tomorrow. I'm going to get it out. I'm going to get some margins if I can. And she said to us, and your boy is going to be just fine. Just another reassurance. And I guess after, you know, you have this this inner Rocky in you as Mama Bear and you've got this surgeon with the same sort of inner fight as the surgeon, it you yeah, you got this. Exactly. And and that's exactly what she did. I mean, it was a nine, eight, nine hour surgery, but she went in and there was the single tumor. She even got a little bit of margin, which is no small thing, as you can imagine, in the sure. brain to get that. And she came out to the waiting room after that time and said, you know, it's what I thought it was, this particular type of brain tumor called medulloblastoma. And she said, but I got all of it. I didn't see any signs of any spread. You know, he's going to be in the ICU for probably seven, eight days recovering from this, but he's, you know, he should be just fine. Not he should be, he will be just fine. And over the next day or two, you'll meet with the pediatric oncologist and she'll explain to you about the follow-on treatment. And that was the first time where I thought, wait, what? (laughs) What do you mean follow-on treatment? Aren't we done now that we got this out? And is that the first time you thought, uh, you heard the C word cancer. You like the, the is because that, you know, brain tumor, that's scary enough. Then you say cancerous brain tumor. And then it seems not such a knockout fight, but what were you feeling during that? 
that was when, when she told us that we were going to have to meet with the oncologist, that was when I started to realize the full magnitude, which is funny looking back because, you know, most of the time, I think when people hear you have a tumor, unless the doctor says, but I'm pretty sure it's benign, you kind of expect to hear radiation, chemotherapy, you know, some sort of treatment. I just, I had such a strong idea that it was going to be just surgical only until that moment. And that was really when I realized, oh, we're, we're not done. It, it wasn't that I didn't think Jimmy would survive it. I was convinced that he would. But I, but I also thought, oh, this is going to be harder and more complicated than I thought it was. And this is still your 13-year-old boy. And now seven, eight days in ICU, um, you're, he's coming around. How was how that experience? Um, did Molly get to come to see him in the ICU or was it restricted? Or, you know, what, I, I have so many questions. Uh, did the pediatric uh, oncologist come into the ICU and have conversations with you? I mean, it, it just seems, I don't know. I just, oh, 13 years old in the prime of his life, now in ICU and getting ready to be injected with so many toxic chemicals in order to save his life. And so what, what were the next steps for your family? So to answer your question about Molly first, she was able to visit him and, you know, <laughs> what I remember most about that is walking down the hallway. Cause I would, my mom was staying with us. And so, and also my husband's parents. And so they would bring her to the hospital and you could only have one visitor besides the two of us. So I would go out and get her and walk her back. And I remember walking down the hallway with all the doors, you know, the first time. And she, she put her head down and she said, mom, I don't like to look in the rooms. Cause it was just, you know, you can imagine pediatric ICU and, you know, scary. Um, but Jimmy was, you know, he had this really sweet sense of humor and this gentle spirit. And he was, he was in pain from the surgery, but he was recovering and he was reassuring. So he was, you know, this was her brother in the bed and his head hurt, but he was better and he was going to get out and, um, child life which is an amazing program, was right there. So we had this magical person named Lynn who we're still connected to. Mm. And when she came to see Jimmy, she said, what are you, you know, what are you scared about? What are you worried about, concerned about? He said, it's my sister's birthday on the 13th. And he said, I'm going to still be here and I can't get her a present. And she said, I can make that happen for you. And so she brought up a choice of gifts and he picked one out and she wrapped it for him and he was able to give Molly a birthday present. And that was really, really important to him. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so there was this sweetness to that, you know, yeah. even, even though we were really scared and, and it was all foreign territory that there was, we, we felt like between the neurosurgeon and her physician's assistant and child life that they really wrapped their arms around us. Now, the one weak link in that was the oncologist in that we, Dan and I met with her outside of the room, just the two of us while my mom stayed with Jimmy and, and she was awful. She was, she approached it from this kind of used car salesman perspective, like where we felt like she was trying to sell us on the treatment. 
And I kept thinking, I don't know what the treatment's supposed to be. Like, why are you, why aren't you just saying, here's what needs to happen? And she was very, um, almost glib, if that's the right word, about the side effects. I mean, the line that she said that Dan and I have never forgotten was, she said, by the time I'm done with your son, he's going to be deaf, sterile, and mentally challenged. And what? (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I just sat there thinking, no, this isn't possible. And my husband actually said to her, but he wants to go to college. He wants to go to Stanford. And she said, oh, oh, he's not going to college. She said, he's going to be living. He'll be lucky to finish high school. He'll, he'll be living at home with you for the rest of his life. It, he's not going to college. And it's, I mean, that was the your look right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm just a little shocked because yes. it's like you, you were on this high of, hey, we've got it. We've got margins. Tell me what else we need to do to reassure that the boy can get back on the path that he was two weeks ago before all this happened. And we can forget right. all about this. Right. And suddenly, it's almost like you're carrying a little red balloon and this oncologist just came by and popped it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and the thing that I'll also say now with the benefit of having gotten to know a ton of neuro-oncologists because of Jimmy's, you know, getting second opinions and just, you know, the part of the story we haven't talked about yet, she stands alone. I mean, there is no other neuro-oncologist I've ever met who behaved in this manner. And I don't, I don't know if she was worried we were going to move this treatment. I have no idea where she was coming from because, but it, the thing about it is, is that it was such a gift because Dan and I left that meeting and looked at each other and said, you know, I don't know whether or not what she said is true, but by God, we're not going to just put him in her hands. And so we got on our cell phones outside the ICU and we started looking up other neuro-oncologists. And what we discovered was that one of the best in the country for Jimmy's kind of brain tumor was up the road in, we were in Portland at the time, up the road at OHSU. And, you know, he was, he was 10 minutes away. And so Dan left a message for him, got a call back within an hour, and and that's where we took Jimmy to get treated. Isn't that funny how sometimes the worst moments of your life, people show themselves that, and you're so grateful for that because you might have not have turned the other way and right. found this other physician. So the yeah, the positivity that you can see in that moment, like, thank God she was that way because... You, you now are going to put him in the hands of someone you absolutely trust um, because you've done your research. Man, but still, oh man, sometimes, uh, I, I can't even, I, I've, I've met some oncologists like that and then I've met some oncologists that will bend their knee and look in the eyes of a child. Um, and, and so just like all professions, they're really, really good ones and they're really, really bad ones. Um, and it, it's, it's the same within healthcare for sure. So, so talk to me about walking through this whole treatment. How long was he in treatment? When did you ever feel hope again that, that, oh, we, this is, this is going to be long and painful to see my son suffer through this, but we're going to get back on where he's going to be back on his feet. Oh, I, we didn't lose that feeling. 
um, for the next couple of years because the treatment was long. It was six weeks of, of craniospinal radiation and then nine rounds of chemotherapy. So it was more than a year's worth of treatment. But Jimmy really sailed through it. You know, he came home from the ICU and he got stronger and he said, I want to go back to school. I don't, I don't want to be home. And the, the, our oncologist, his oncologist, Dr. Nicholson said, if he can be in school, that's the best place for him. He should go be with his friends. And so Jimmy would go to school and we'd pick him up after school and take him to get radiation. And then he'd come home, have dinner, do some homework collapse into bed, and then get up and do it again the next day. And that's basically how he went through treatment. You know, the same thing with the chemotherapy. He'd go into the hospital for a couple of days for the chemo. He'd come home. He'd go right back to school. And never once during those nine rounds did he get an infection or have to be hospitalized. So again, you know, you talk about the way we approach this, he, you know, he that fit right in. It was like he he had this. He, he was, he, you know, he exercised and he rode his bike and he got involved with Livestrong thanks to my husband. And so he was raising money for the, for the Livestrong foundation and going to school and playing soccer. And he just, he just kept, he was determined to keep his life as normal as he could with all the rest of this going on. And, and that's basically how we approached it is we thought we've got the tumor. This is the follow on treatment and he's going to go on to live a long full life. But that didn't happen. No, it did not. It did not. We had one year after he finished treatment where he was getting quarterly scans and he looked great. You know, we thought, okay, he's done. This is just going to be not a blip, but this is going to be an experience. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then we showed up for his scan in March of 2008, two years after he had been had the initial diagnosis. And Dr. Nicholson was late in getting into the room. And I just had that funny feeling of this, something's going on. And when he walked in, the look on his face, I just knew before he said anything that they had found recurrence. And so Jimmy had, he had, it was in a different place. It was at the top of his head instead of the back of his head, but he had, they had had, he had a recurrence. And so he initially, they did a, an arthro, not an arthroscopic surgery, an endos, endoscopic biopsy to be sure that, that, that it was in fact tumor, which it was. And then that next year was the worst, that 2008 was the worst year of treatment because he had five rounds of very intense chemotherapy, wound up in the hospital each time for at least a week for infection. And then in August, he had high-dose chemotherapy followed by a stem cell rescue using his stem cells. And he was in the hospital for 21 days. But the amazing thing about it is even then, he stayed in school. He played soccer again for his, he was a sophomore then, for his sophomore um, high school team. And, you know, he, he was in the, you can imagine with the high-dose chemo stem cell rescue, I mean, he was miserable. But at day 21, his counts or something close to that, his counts started rebounding. He was out a week earlier than they thought he'd be. You know, we got a tutor. He stayed in school. You know, he was home for two months on quarantine, but he went back as, as, you know, to his junior year, I think around in November and really didn't miss a beat. He was just amazing. And again, we have this feeling of like, okay, we've got this. 
You know, it's and his personality. Yes, personality stayed the same, just sweet. Hey, you know, let's keep. I want my life. This is right. what we're going to have to do to keep my life. And exactly. Oh man. Oh, and so you felt like you got through the second occurrence. Right. And, and there was some, it was obviously a lot less of a percentage, but there was some percent, like a 30% chance that it would cure him. And we put him on a low dose chemo protocol as a follow on to that treat, to that treatment, you know, I guess it was like nine months of treatment, something like that, whatever it was. And then he went off of it, as I remember after a period of time. And three months later, when he had his routine scan, he had two spots. But even then, Dr. Nicholson said, you know, Jimmy seems to be able to live with this because normally what happens with Jimmy's kind of cancer is that when it recurs, the kids are usually dead in three to six months because it comes back like a freight train. So they don't just find like they did with Jimmy, a couple of isolated growths. They do the the quarterly scan or sometimes they do it sooner because the kid's already symptomatic and it's just everywhere in the brain and spine. And so at this point, he was, he was a junior and Dr. Nicholson said, I think we should just do very focused radiation. We'll put him back on the low-dose chemo protocol and he should just plan on moving forward with things. And so that fall, he got into, he got into Stanford and decided that he was going to go. Yeah. Yeah. He, he got into Stanford Mm -hmm. and was, and and so what was it like on his graduation day? Oh, it was just amazing. I mean, that it's just amazing um, to think of what the, that kid had managed to do to keep himself in school. He got straight A's all the way through, I think it was the first semester of his senior year. And it, it was just, it was remarkable what he was able to do. Wow. And so tall. So he, did he go to Stanford? He did. So how many years was he there? He was there for two and a half years, two and a half years. And then what happened? Well, he continued to have these recurrences and we were managing it for the most part, but we had to keep switching treatment whenever they would start growing again. And so it got to a point at the towards the end of winter quarter of his senior year where it was just too much for him to manage the side effects he wasn't having any symptoms from the cancer but i would drop him off at the dorm after he would get the infusion and he just said mom it's just i feel too sick and it's hard for me to go to class and i just i need to take a leave of absence and come home did that did that scare you because you were seeing the after effects possibly for the first time that he wanted to pause something that meant a lot to him because he got, he got through high school continued. Um, was that a, was that a sign for you? Like, Oh no. Or did, what did you feel like during that when he, when he said he wanted to take a leave? I, that's a good question. I, I, it was the first time where I really felt like the treatment was getting to his body in a way that it wasn't that he couldn't function because he was still out and about and seeing friends and going to class. He, he wasn't going, it was hard for him to go every day, but 
it was more the one of the scans that followed that where he I, we started seeing physical symptoms mm-hmm. from the tumor not the treatment and where we then had right around that time or shortly thereafter we had a, he had a, a quarterly scan where the growth was significant and i that was the first time where i looked at that scan and i thought we are now losing this battle <gasps> And, and it wasn't like I thought, okay, you know, he's going to die. Like, but it was just this sinking feeling of up until then, I felt like we had it corralled, like that we could keep him going. He was still in school. We would find the treatment, right? There'd be a new clinical trial, some new approach, and that we would be able, as Dr. Nicholson said, we'd be able to just, he'd be able to live with it basically. And we would beat it back. Or we would find the treatment that would that would manage it, or even get rid of it. Wow, as a, I, I'm not a mother, um, but to start seeing the symptoms of of the treatment and the cancer, I can only imagine um, when your stomach fell that we're we're losing this. Um, and that how long that was what years. In, into this. We were seven years into this at that point. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Whoa. So he came home? Yep. He came home and, and he was definitely having some side effects from the, from the, from the cancer in that he, his feet were, would get a little numb. He would have double vision. And then after we had that scan where I thought, oh, we are, you know, we are losing this battle. Dr. Nicholson, who was still running his, his treatment from Portland, um, he was still in charge of it, even though he was treated at UCSF down near Stanford. Um, he said, you know, I think we ought to look at re-radiating him and see if we can really get some more control. And, and he didn't say and extend his life, but that was, that was kind of the idea, you know, really beat it back significantly. And so in May of that year, May into June, um, they re-radiated Jimmy. And he and I went down and, and lived at Family House down at UCSF in San Francisco. And it was actually a really beautiful six weeks because Dan was here with Molly and, and the two of them have a similar personality and have a lot of fun together. They're both type A and, <laughs> and very intense. And she's a softball player. He, he coached her when she was little and then would work with her. You know, he'd pitch and she'd hit and they'd throw together and all that. So, you know, they were together and then Jimmy and I were together and, and we would walk every day up to the hospital so he could get a little exercise. And we just had this, you know, it was a lovely time, as scary as it was. It was six weeks that was just a gift. Hmm. And, and we did it again in October because the, the, the way they had done the treatment, there was one area, and I don't remember why now, but the doctor decided not, either decided not to radiate it or it wasn't, there wasn't growth there when she did it. And so we did another six weeks that was more focused in October. And again, had a really lovely six weeks together, despite this really scary experience. But a lot of that was his treatment team too, his nurse practitioner, his doctor, the, the radiation oncologist, who we just loved, the nurses, and so we would actually look forward to seeing them as crazy as yeah, that. Sounds. Yeah, there's some amazing people there in San Francisco among that university hospital. I'm telling you what, um, I, I'm, I'm friends with some of them and, and they're just amazing human beings. Um, and, but, you know, those six weeks, 
Um, they must have been really special. Um, and even though you're you're trying to extend your son's life, you're you're just enjoying one another. And do you do you think back on that time just fondly now? Of oh my gosh, that I can't believe we had so much fun during and so much connection during those times. Yes, I do because I know me well enough to know that I'm the one who's always popping up and you know doing the dishes or popping up to throw in a load of laundry at home and you know i just i have this sort of like revved up energy quality to me and i don't settle very easily but the beauty of being down there was that we were just together i didn't have other than the occasional load of laundry we went out for most meals or we would keep some simple things in the in the, in the kitchen that they had on our floor but i didn't have that many responsibilities i was i wasn't working I was just with him. Hmm. And so I, I'm so grateful because those are 12 weeks that we spent together that we would not have spent in that way had, had we not had that experience. Yeah, um, I'm sure. When, when did you realize that my son is not going to live through this? November of that year. Because the scan in September had shown, I think it was September, had shown that the June radiation had significantly beaten back the cancer. We had an incredible response to the radiation and just growth in the area where she hadn't radiated. So the thought was, well, we'll radiate him in October and then we'll get a good response to that. And and then, you know, hopefully he'll be able to go for a while with this. And what we discovered in November was that we had gotten a response in the area that was radiated in October, but everything had grown back in the area that had been radiated in June. And I looked at that scan and I thought, this is it. Like, I don't know how quickly, but, but this is it. We have, we have lost this battle. And I didn't say anything to Jimmy or Dan in that moment, but I just, I just knew that 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 was the case. And so we tried a couple of other of other things, but nothing really made a difference. Yeah, you felt like you were li- you were living in borrowed time. Yeah. Exactly. What exactly. is that what is that like as a mother to look at your son and and knowing that that every moment is a gift because you're losing this. I mean, what what was going through your mind, your family, Molly, your husband? I mean, when did you guys all together as a family realize that that Jimmy would always be a part of your family, but Jimmy would not be here physically? That didn't come for another, I would say another six or so weeks, something like that for everyone else. Because I didn't say anything. We we had these other couple of things to try, which you know ultimately didn't work. And then he had another scan in January. And at that point, the nurse practitioner, well, actually, I should back up. One of the smartest things that Shannon, Jimmy's nurse practitioner, did was to pull me aside in November and say, look, I think we need to engage home health care. And she said, that way, Jimmy doesn't have to go somewhere to get his blood draws. If he needs fluids or just anything comes up, he'll be seen a couple of times a week by a nurse. He can, he can start to get to know her. We can get a social worker assigned. 
And she said, we don't use the word hospice. This is just home health. This is, you know, making it easier for him. And, and she said, and we may not need to use the term or, you know, cause it has, as you know, particularly when you're talking about a young person, it, it's, it's a weighted word. Yeah, um, sure. And so that's where we started was with that. And then when he had the scan in January, she then said, you have to tell him, you have to tell him, because if you don't, he's not going to realize he's dying potentially, or he won't until it's, you know, where, very close to the time that he is. And she said, right now he's, he's feeling good enough and he's mobile that he, he can have some agency over what he does with these weeks and months that are coming. Cause we didn't know how long he had. And she said, you've got to find a way to tell him. And so I did um, another, maybe week, less than a week later, I, I got the, you know, I, I basically didn't want to, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband and I talked about it. We, you know, we sort of agreed we were going to have to find a way. And then he left the room to go do something. And Jimmy said something about, he was catheterized at that point, And he said something to me about when I get the catheter out and I don't have the poker face. And whatever expression I had on my face, he just looked at me and he said, oh, he said, my catheter's not coming out, is it? And I said, no, it's not. And then that's when I told him. Mm. Whoa. I mean, so talk to me about those last weeks. And, and is, was it months with your son? No, we had, we had three weeks, basically. What? That point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, because it was Jimmy, they were amazing. Really? So I, you know, we said to him, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to see the people I love most. And so he, he said, take this down. (laughs) So I started, you know, he makes this list and he wants to see my mom and he wants to see his aunt and uncle, Dan's siblings. And he wants to see his three best friends from high school. And he wants to see his best friend from Stanford. And he wants to see, um, Lance Armstrong, who he'd gotten to be friends with from the, from the Livestrong Foundation. And he wanted to see a couple friends from Livestrong. And he wanted to see our friend Howard, who lives in New Zealand, who's my husband's best friend and one of my best friends. And I'm him making this list and I'm thinking, oh, God, you know, we're talking about people from all over the country. And, you know, how is this going to work? And, you know, Kimberly, every single one of them got on a plane uh, or uh. got in a car and, and up, over the up. next two and a half, three weeks, they showed up and we staggered them because obviously, yeah, you know, he yeah, didn't have the energy or stamina. And also we wanted him to be able to savor that time. So we basically kind of mapped it out yeah. and had people rolling through the house. That's and amazing. Howard That's amazing. Came, Howard came from New Zealand as he had come, like when Jimmy was diagnosed, when he recurred, you know, he would, he would just get on a plane and drop everything. He came out for like two weeks to be with us, but most people came for a couple days and would, would spend time with him. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And it was just, it was amazing. It was a tribute to how much he loved these people I know, I and the way that, man, ah, <laughs> uh, what, what a special kid. Yeah. What a special kid. And so did, did hospice help keep him home? Yes. And, and, and what, you know, as you well know, hospice is amazing. It wasn't my first experience with it, but it was really incredible. And 
So Alicia, our, our home health nurse in Asia, our social worker, unbeknownst to me, went to their boss. I think it was Alicia who did it. She went to their boss and said, look, this is a 21-year-old kid. We cannot swap out on him and suddenly have some hospice nurse he hasn't met before yeah. show up. Yeah. I'd like permission to transition and for this period of time become his hospice nurse. And they got permission. That's amazing. So that they could stay with him that whole time. And I didn't even know that was gonna, like an option. I just sort of thought, well, of course they'll transition. I didn't think about hospitals and protocols and know you're in this department, but you're not right. in this department. But you know, that's that's what makes this whole end of life field such a unique place is, is they, they, these special unique people meet the family and patient where they're at and they're they're, they're They would go to battle for you um, because it's now they're somehow an extension of family, but yet this professional group of people that you've entrusted um, you just can't gain trust like that. Um, with with new people coming in. So good for them. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, it was incredible. And then when, you know, as we got towards the end, they both said, you call night or day, you call us, we will come over, we will be here. And so we could tell around eight o'clock on a Saturday that Jimmy was, that, the, that we were probably going to lose him sometime that night. And they came over. And they were there until the end. You know, they met the funeral people when they picked him up. They, they, you know, it was like all the things that I couldn't imagine doing. They were like, you know, you tell us what you want us to do and we will, we will do this for you. What, what was it like those first few days without physically having your son with you, um, for you, your husband and Molly? For me, it was surreal. I had this really weird feeling and it wasn't just the first few days. It was more like the first few weeks, maybe even the first month where I kept feeling like he was just upstairs in his room Mm -hmm. or just taking a nap or just away at college. And I, and I confess, I, I leaned into it. I mean, I would think, you know what? I know that the harsh reality is coming. It's not like I think I'm going to escape this, but if I can sort of feel like maybe he's just not in the room right now, I'm okay with that because I was, when I let myself go there, I would, I would just fall apart. Sure. Sure. So there, so your son at 21, um, he died from this, this long journey of, of living and treating cancer. Um, what, how did you go from being a mother at the bedside of a dying son to creating salt water and why salt water? And, and tell me a little bit about how you have taken this tr- just crazy, sad, tragic, whatever, and, and turned it around to create healing for other people. I mean, which is extraordinary to me. Oh, well, thank you. So it took a little bit of time in that. So my mom, who I was, I'm very close to, was very close to, wound up getting sick, um, coming home from Jimmy's celebration of life in Portland, and then declined over the next year and died. And so it was this incredible 
double whammy of these two losses. And the thing that was that was unknown to me until it happened, though, was how very different people, the different ways people treat deaths, which I hadn't thought about because I hadn't experienced a lot of death in my life until my son had died. My dad had died, but my father had been 102 and a half. Whoa. And so when somebody says to you, he had a long, full life, it's like, yeah, he did. Like, you don't, <laughs> <laughs> you don't get longer and fuller than that, right? Right. And so he, he was 60 when he had me and I'd had him for 42 and a half years, which was just an unbelievable blessing. And he was with it until the very final few months. So I thought naively, well, this is how it goes, right? You, you, you take care of yourself, you exercise, you eat well, you stay engaged with life, you have a long, full life, and then you die very peacefully at home in your own bed. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> Isn't this how it works? <laughs> oh, wow. That's yeah. 60, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so awesome. my mom, you know, my mom was 22 years younger. Her mom also lived to be 102. And again, which just sort of fed my narrative about how the whole thing worked. And so she expected to live to be the same age. And she had a blood disorder called polycythemia, which is what took her life. And she died at 92. And so when people would hear that on the face of it, she was 92. I mean, that's a great age. It's not like she died at 50 or 40 or, you know, something really tragic. But for me, it was a year after my son died. Mm. She was one of my pillars mm. and she did not want to die because her only child was devastated by the death of her son. Yeah. She was devastated by the death of her grandson and she didn't want to leave me. And so I got a lot of, well, she had a long, full life. And I know people meant, well, I didn't get offended or, you know, anything like that. But I was like, oh, wow, context. <laughs> right. Really here. Exactly. And so I started to, to notice that. And it was something that I didn't really relate to in sites that I found that were supportive of or trying to be supportive for someone who'd had a significant loss is, as you well know, there's a lot of ranking and grief. And there's a feeling of like, no, there's not space to honor everyone's pain. First, we must rank. We must put it in the hierarchy. And if you're grieving the death of your dog, I'm sorry, you don't get as much space as I do because my son is dead. Or if you're grieving the death of your grandmother who raised you and who served as your mother, well, she was your grandmother and she was old and she had a long full life. I mean, there were exactly. all these, these caveats that people put on it. Yeah, and and you when you start telling your story, people are like, "Well, you know, I've had a similar experience." And you're like, "No, you have not." You know, it's like, and and you're right. It does come out. I, I think because we human beings, we want to fix things. Mm -hmm. We want to make you feel better. Right. And and with your son dying and your mom dying a year later, there's nothing could, that could have made you feel better because it sucked. It absolutely sucked. And there's nothing we can do about to change that. Um, and, and, you know, I remember just wanting to, to be and help other friends who've lost significant others. And, and you just, there's nothing, almost like that feeling when, when your son was first diagnosed, that you wanted to protect him, but you can't. 
And it was, it's that. It's, but you can show up and say, this sucks. Right. And I'm going to be here. Exactly. And I'm going to be you, here till the end. Yeah. You won't be alone. And, and I will not look can, away. Yes. And you we can, can cry. We me. can laugh. We can, whatever it's going, it, that is the normal thing that we will go through. And it's not crazy to laugh through your tears. It's, it's, it's just showing up and sometimes shutting up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's the other, what you're touching on is the other component that had me also want to start saltwater was that I think there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that gets written that's nasty about what people say. So as you know, well, I shouldn't say, you know, I, you I wonder if you've had this experience, like, even though I have had some profound, significant, devastating losses, when someone I love loses a child, loses a spouse, I still struggle with what the right thing is to say the best thing, not the right thing. So I can only imagine how hard it is for somebody who hasn't had that kind of loss, trying desperately to find something to say. But a lot of what's out there is things like, you know, the eight things you should never say to a grieving parent, or here are the categories of, you know, the stupid people that will say X, Y, Z, you know, the fixers, the diminishers, the, you know, whatever. Here's a casserole. You know, even those people that just have to do something. Right. And, and mean well, and are just trying to show you that they love yeah. and they care and they're showing up. And so those kinds of sites didn't appeal to me either. And so as I was sitting with all this and I was dealing with my mom's trust and, you know, going through her house and all this, my friend, Regina Ellis, who runs Children's Cancer Association up in Oregon, texted me and said, Hey, I have a mom whose son just died and she's like us, meaning that she's spiritual, but she's not religious in an organized religion sort of way. And she said, I need you to send me some articles because I know that you, you know, she knew that I read a lot and that kind of thing. And I texted her back and I said, I don't really have anything to send you. And she texted me back and said, well, you better start writing. <laughs> Good. And that was the moment where I thought, well, maybe I should because I can't find what, what I'm looking for. <laughs> that was when love I love their small seeds that somehow the universe plants and it's up to you if they grow and look where you are. Now, why the, why? So really saltwater is a re resource platform for those with significant losses and dealing with grief, correct? Yes. It's, it's a platform. It's an online community. Exactly. And, and why saltwater? Because when I got together with a couple of friends who were going to help me name it, I had, I love the quote by Isaac Dennison, which is the cure for anything is salt water, sweat, tears of the sea. And my friend Andy asked why salt water was on the list among all these other grief related names. And I told her, and she said, that's what you should call it. Call it salt water and then organize the blog posts in those three categories. And the it. minute she said it, it was like, yeah, that's it. And she then she said, and your tagline is find your harbor. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> yeah, especially being an East Coast kid on the coast, you know, smelling the salt air at, you know, so close to it. But yet it, it's a mystery how salt is very representative in tears as well. Um, it's that's so unique. So what are what are your hopes for salt water? So my plan is to keep growing it organically as I have. 
you know, to have it reach more people. Um, I love the fact that I have guest posters, guest writers that write for it because I always, I wanted it to be a broad platform where any kind of loss was welcome. And so I love the fact that people will reach out to me and say, can I write a piece about this? And, and I really, anyone is welcome who wants Mm. to do that because I, you know, I have my own experience, but as you said, even though I've lost a child, it doesn't mean it's the same for someone else who's lost a child. There's commonality and there's comfort and connection, but it's still different because their experience was different from mine. And so I really value that. Um, I love the writing. So I've, I, you know, I plan to keep writing and, and I, my goal is to, is to start actually pitching some of it. I'd love to, to write some articles and get some things published and oh, good. I think that would be cool. So I'd like to do that. Um, and the third, the third way that it's grown, which was really unexpected is that when I launched it, I also relaunched my consulting practice. And at the time they felt like they were two separate entities and I've kept them that way in most regards, because saltwater is ad-free and solicitation-free. And I didn't want anyone to feel like, oh, she's trying to, you know, pitch her consulting business or any, you know, so there's no crossover there. But what I've discovered um, is that there's a lot of overlap Mm. in the sense that there's so much grief and loss in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And that if we are bad or struggle to be supportive in our personal lives, in the office, we just put our hand up and say, oh no, I, I'm not going there. I'm, I can't say anything to Kimberly. I know that, you know, her brother has just died or her parent or whatever, but I can't say anything to her. And so yeah, we grieve or, alone. Or, or, and this silly thing of deal with your grief in three paid days off, yeah. which is, yeah, you know, and, and a lot of people want to be like, aren't you through the stages of grief? I'm like, well, I'm on stage, like, you know, 561. And my boyfriend who died of melanoma died, it'll be 21 years, May 7th. And there's still some days I'll drop a tear. You know, it's, it is, it just, it's almost like a backpack, you know, you, you, it's always there. You just learn to wear it and you hope you wear it well. And, and there are some days it will bring me to my knees. And then there's some days that I'm, I'm so grateful for the experience of, of, of that um, painfulness that it's because it's shaped who I am and the direction of my life. And it, it's just, whoo, um, you know, it's, it's never, it's never gone, but yeah, the workplace is totally, and I believe my field hospice, we're the worst. Really? Yeah, I do. I think we need a lot of help by individuals like yourself because it, it becomes mechanical. And then when you're dealing with patients and families and you get close to them and then you lose them and you, you don't have time to grieve because of another patient and family. And then when your own mother dies, it becomes this implosion of, of your identity. Um, and can you go back to be in that at the bedside? Um, so I I would love to see you expand your work within even the end of life field because we are desperate to make space for that, um, especially for hospice nurses and and key staff members that are at that bedside um, on a daily basis. Um, I think we should we have mandatory bereavement and and 
space so that um, we do feel. And I, you know, and even myself, I, I didn't realize that I even carried grief until I started writing my book. And I started crying every day. And I'm like, what? And a friend of mine who is a nurse practitioner came over and and she goes, we haven't seen you. And I know you're writing this book. And and my eyes are all puffy and red. And she goes, what's going on? And I said, I don't know. I cannot stop crying. And she goes, oh, you're finally feeling it. And that was the first time I thought, oh my gosh, I'm grieving. I'm grieving. I'm finally allowing myself to fall apart. You know, and that's when after I'd left a full-time job in the hospice field, when I could feel it. So I I I would love to see you work with um other hospices and palliative care and um and how you can get involved in supporting, you know, that work life, especially at the bedside of the dying. That would be amazing. Oh, that's so interesting. I would have thought that because the the hospice folks that we dealt with were amazing, are amazing, have become close friends because of that, that, that every, they're wrapped in services and care and knowing exactly how to process and move through it because you're also amazing at helping those of us who are experiencing it go through it. You know, it's different mm-hmm. because it, it's, we're not related. Mm-hmm. And we can be strong, but when something personally happens to us, like a father, mother, brother, sister, it it it's almost like we don't have our training. Mm. It's it's personal. It's and we and sometimes we can't process that as well as we can process, um, you know, someone else's grief because we don't we don't we don't put on your grief. Mm-hmm. We we guide you. We right. we we're the Sherpa. Um, and when we're in our own grief, that Sherpa is not there. Yeah. So oh, it's amazing. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me. Tell us the website because I know I know we took a long time talking um, about what brought you to Saltwater, and I think that I think it's really relevant um, that Jimmy's legacy is continuing through Saltwater and helping others find their way through grief and loss and and how and and how do you intro you know interwind your your own story in saltwater with with your mom as well as jimmy i mean how do you do that so it's just it's for me it's a lot of writing you know mm-hmm. i just i have i'm in two writing groups one feedback group and one group that just writes together you know and I find that very healing. Oh, it's hugely healing. And what's amazing to me is I sort of thought I would run out of things to say. And what I realized (laughs) is it's like an excavation, right? That you write those initial pieces and there's nothing wrong with them, but you're kind of up here. And then as you keep digging, it's like you remember more and more and you get more in touch with different layers of that loss. And and that's been a gift because I think about Jimmy all the time. And, mm-hmm. and it's also made space for the lovely, sweet memories to come back. Because uh, for the longest time after he died, what I remembered were the, you know, the worst moments in the hospital, the, the dying part of his final weeks, the mistakes that I made. You know, I could give you, I could have given you an entire, you know, list of all the things that I had done in my mind that, you know, where I got impatient or I I didn't spend time with him or whatever it was. 
and and as I've written and sat more and more with the loss and processed, it's it's opened the floodgates for the other memories. And I have oh, them wow. back now, which is not all of them. I mean, they come back to me, but but there is now a pathway for that. Mm-hmm. So talk to me. What's the website again? It's findyourharbor.com. And really, what is this platform? What is your ultimate goal? And who are you trying to outreach to? To anyone who's grieving a loss. And and for and note for people to know that there is space for everything on saltwater. So, you know, I have people connected to saltwater who have lost a pet bird or a pet rat, all the way from there to people who have, of course, lost children or parents at a young age, whatever it is. There's it runs the entire continuum of loss. And there's also resources for people who want to support someone who's grieving that are written about what you can say and what you can do as opposed to those lists of what you shouldn't say and do, which leave you feeling like, well, where do I go with this? Okay. These are the eight things or 10 things or 20 things I shouldn't say, but what do I say and what do I do and what's helpful? And so I also write about that as well. And there are resources for that there too. Wow. I think Jimmy would be very, very proud of you. Yeah. I think he would too. And I think the biggest thing that I carry his greatest legacy is that he was the kindest person I have Mm. ever met. And what I have discovered through this is that I am kinder now as a person than I ever would have been had this not happened. And I would give it back in a heartbeat to have him back. But it is also part of his enduring legacy is that I have learned to, I still think the snarky thought (laughs) but I don't say it. And and I've discovered what he learned at a really young age is that Mm. magic of when you hold your tongue, that even if it's really a yucky situation, that you leave it a lot more easily because you didn't say something that you regret or that you're embarrassed by. You just, you just let it be and, and walked away with grace. And he was so good at that. And and it's and all this writing and thinking about him has has taught me how to at least do that some of the time. That's I'm amazing. not perfect, but I'm getting better. Oh wow. I I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed these last 60 some minutes with you. First of all, thank you for sharing Jimmy and Molly and your husband um, and your whole experience with losing. A son at 21. Um, it is an amazing thing how telling Jimmy's story can affect a complete stranger like me. And I will carry him um, as long as I have breath in me. It, I will never forget these words and, and especially kindness. Gosh, in a world with a pandemic, don't we need more of that? Um, and thank you for sharing Jimmy's story, your story. Can, keep writing, kid. Keep writing. (laughs) Keep doing it. Um, And I look forward. And if there's anything that I can do to support your platform, support Jimmy's legacy, let's talk about it. Um, Because I think you have an amazing story. And uh, I think you also have still have an amazing son. Well, thank you. I mean, that's that's the gift, right? Is to be able to keep saying his name and telling his story because that's what keeps him alive for all of us. You know, who loved him and knew him is is reaching someone who didn't and and having his story have an impact and have meaning. So thank you. That's there is no greater gift than what you just said. 
Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.